Kick off the new year with great deals at the Ram Start Something New sales event. Now, during Owner Appreciation Month, well-qualified returning FCA lessees can get a low-mileage lease on the 2019 Ram 1500 Classic Express Quad Cab 4x4 with a V6 engine for $159 a month for 39 months with $3,799 due at signing. Tax title license extra. Call 1-877-RAM-5722 for lease details. Requires dealer contribution to lease through Ally. Current lease must end by 2-1-2021. Extra charge for miles over 32,500. Residency restrictions apply. Take delivery from dealer stock by 2-3-2020. Infirmary Media. In decades, the Matrix and Blade versus Bloodsport and Renegade. Strap on that cap, bust out the power glove. Come fight for what you love. Who culture popping pins, dropping hand grenades? Van Halen locked in Mortal Kombat with David Gray. Found out ballet in sick. I am made of GNR. Come fight for what you love. Broadcasting from the new Infirmary Media Studios. It's the adult audio retro game show where the 80s and 90s do battle because it's your history. We just fight for it. Welcome back to Dueling Decades. Let's take a look at this week's duelers and the decades they will be fighting for as we get back to tag team action here on our show. First off, in the 90s corner, dueling with 1997. Hey guys, this is Revenge of the Turds, and we're speaking with Joe Finley right now from Miscast Commentary. We're looking for some sweet, sweet revenge against Man Crush, as is my partner. Take it away. This is Carlos from the B-Cat Rewind. I'm here for my vengeance. <laughs> I'm here to get it, brother. Let's do this. Now, hold on. Before we go any further, didn't you win the last time you were on, Carlos? No, uh, I didn't. All right. I, by the skin of my teeth, I was right there. All right. We'll see what happens. I was right there. I'm looking for that first W, man. Damn. I'm almost all right. there. I'm not feeling good if this is, he's looking for his first one. I know. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm hungry. Zitching. And tonight, they'll be taking on the Mama Lukes, the team consisting of myself, Mark James, and this man. What's up, everybody? Man Crush here. It seems like everybody's got my number, and they're coming to get me. Joe definitely wants to uh, get a little revenge after his, uh, his trouncing. Actually, I don't even remember what the score was, but it, it didn't feel good. I remember that. <laughs> well, you killed me like a couple months before that. And uh, what in that true crime thing i can't get out of my mind but anyhow we're uh we got september of uh, 1988 which every time we look at the 80s for whatever reason i always want to bypass 88 i don't know why i think it's because the mets lost to the dodgers that year when they're supposed to win and i fucking hate that year but let's see what happens tonight and as always we need someone to adjudicate all of this awesomeness so tonight we have the co-host of the popular selling out podcast Please rise for Judge Dave Schultz. Hey, how are you? And if you're not rising, I'm rising enough for all of you. <laughs> <laughs> Ladies and gentlemen, the following contest will be held under Dueling Decades rules. The judges coin flip shall decide who picks first out of the five Dueling Decades categories. Movies, television, music, news, and hot products. A judge's ruling will determine who wins each round, allowing the victor to choose the next available category. The first three rounds are worth one point each, with rounds four and five worth two points apiece. And the winning decade shall be decided by the highest overall score after all five rounds. Duelers, if those old ladies really want to know where the beef is, it's right here on Dueling Decades. It's David Schultz. 
who has his camera hey. on. Right <laughs> All right, David, what do you got to flip? Well, I didn't have anything really interesting, so uh, or I didn't bring anything interesting. So instead, I got a copy of Better Homes and Gardens from June 2019. <laughs> it's got some uh, topical. great articles. Yeah, some great articles in here on easy living, which we all know a lot about. So uh, someone's got to call the front cover, and someone's got to call the back cover, which has an ad with a dude that looks like Shaq, but may not be Shaq. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Revenge of the Turds. You guys call it. All right, call for us, Carlos. Let's go. Uh, let's go. Maybe Shaq. <laughs> maybe Wait, Shaq. Is it a Papa okay. John's Here ad? <laughs> Here comes the flip. Maybe Shaq wins it. Yes. Maybe Shaq <laughs> every time. Maybe Are Shaq. Are we sure All that right. it's Shaq? <laughs> no, I'm not sure who it is, but he's a very large man. Well, intimidating. Everyone knows scary. that Shaq so. made all his money at LSU. So that was in the 90s. <laughs> all right. So you guys control the board. All right, which one do you think we should uh, hop hop on with? Oh, I don't know. Want to start out with the hot products? Let's do that. Hot products for the win. <laughs> All right, well, for what I have, uh, came out in 1997, uh, September 1997. Didn't give an exact date, but out there in 97, Nano Gig Pets. It's the other Tamagotchis, you know, the other form. Apparently, they were made before Tamagotchis. You know, these things were such a huge phenomenon. I remember in middle school that all the girls had to run to their run to their lockers to go check or feed their their little Tamagotchis or their Gigapets. So it was a huge phenomenon. It was like Tamagotchi or Gigapets. It was the Pepsi versus, you know, Coca-Cola. So it was kind of a big deal if you were like 12. You know, everybody else didn't give a shit. But if you're like 12, 13 at the time, you gave a shit. And this was a huge deal. And so, you know, Gigapets came around and... They were just a little bit cheaper than Tamagotchi, so they had they started gaining uh, a little bit of momentum on them in the U.S. because they they were out in Japan first, while Tamagotchi had a little bit of lead in the U.S. But Gigapets they they came uh, they came roaring back with their lower prices. Um, but again, it's just, it was a huge phenomenon regardless. You know, I didn't I don't think it really mattered who you got it from as long as you just had one. You know, it's just that middle school mentality. If you just had one to fit in, that's it. No one really cared. Dude, that's like the equivalent of like GoBots to Transformers and uh <laughs> like Robert Cop to the RoboCop line. <laughs> People love GoBots? Are you saying it's superior then? <laughs> no, well my trust me, my parents bought me GoBots, so pff, look how I turned out. All right, for me, uh, this one just comes in under the wire, released September 30th, 1997. Fallout, the very first in the Fallout series, the spiritual successor to the 1988 uh, role-playing game called Wasteland. Uh, it was a turn-based role-playing game that was available on Windows, Mac, and DOS. Uh, it started the special system so it was an acronym for strength perception endurance charisma intelligence agility and luck those were all of your different skill attributes that you could uh, upgrade it was a pioneer in that realm of being able to change and upgrade your attributes to uh, create a unique version of a character uh, for your game uh, it was a part of a surge of rpgs in 1997 uh, ultima online came out that year lands of lore and it sold over 600,000 copies when it was all said and done and it has led to uh, upwards of well, numerous sequels but up upwards of 10 other games when you include spin-offs and mobile games and the like all right i never got into fallout but i i have seen like hmm. uh Funko Pops and things like that of Fallout that yeah. all look pretty cool, but I have no fucking clue who they are. 
But it's nice to know that that started in 1997. Shit. Mm -hmm. Some old stuff. All right. It's over to us, man crush. Oh, man. You sound depressed. Do you want me to go first or do you want to go first? (laughs) (laughs) It don't matter. It's up to you. All right. uh, I'll go first. All right. So September 10th, 1988. And let me tell you, this one was a bitch to find. I had to dig and dig and dig and dig and dig. And I give all the credit in the world to newspapers.com because without them and all their resources, we wouldn't be able to find half of this shit that we find. So props to them. All the talk in 1988 was about a Nintendo Entertainment System and all that, but they were still lacking a lot of options. And let's be honest, computer games were actually better at the time. The quote-unquote graphics, I'm throwing up the... Uh, the the symbol for the quote unquote right now. I know you can't see me and the, uh, the audio especially was better on the computer. Uh, you know, especially when it came to things like Commodore and the Omega. So on September 10th, 1988, we get the electronic arts release of one-on-one Jordan versus bird. And, uh, you know, when you think about a game like this, you need to think nostalgia first, like how you felt when you're playing it. Because for most of these old games, like for myself, they're nearly, unplayable in 2019 somebody like mike ranger still loves the gameplay that said in 1988 this was a hot title arguably the two best players in the entire nba facing off against one another uh you could dunk with jordan you could shoot the three with bird really fun game the game retailed for 45 dollars. most places where i found an ad uh for the first week it was out from uh, Newegg. They had it for $34.99, which equates to about $73 in 2019. Uh, and then Jordan vs. Bird, it did eventually come to NES, Sega Genesis, Game Boy, and even one of those uh, Tiger handhelds that the uh, poor kids like me had with our GoBots. Um, <laughs> but you know what? At the time, this is the most realistic basketball game you can get your hands on. And before I go on to, uh, to Mark here, I don't think Larry Bird gets enough credit when it comes to these sports games, because uh, here's something that never gets really talked about. This is actually the, a sequel to the EA sports first ever game for EA sports was one-on-one bird versus Dr. J. And those two became the first to ever license themselves to a sports game. So that's pretty damn cool. And look at EA sports now fucking yeah. enormous. So that's what I got. It's one-on-one Jordan versus bird. Wow. Nice. Solid pick. I always loved that game, man. It was fun. Nice little half court. Yeah, it was the predecessor to every basketball game. You know, get that nice half court view. It's fantastic. It's taking me back on this nostalgia trip. It's great because my second pick is something that in the research for this show, sometimes it takes you on this crazy nostalgia trip. So in looking for hot products, sometimes I'll, you know, I'll take a look. Oh, what, what's up for comic books? Anything big selling that month? So I Google September 88 and what comes up? A cover I noticed right off the top of my head. Wow, that's really familiar. I have that issue. And it's an issue that I've had since September of 88 when I was a kid and I bought it off the rack. And that would happen to be Batman number 423. I have it here, and I've always had this, and I've kept it for years and years. A couple of years ago, did I realize this is from 1988. This is one of the very first Todd McFarlane Batman covers. In 1987 and 1988, Todd McFarlane, a young artist, would send out cover samples and drawings to all the major comic book companies. Sometimes they'd give him some feedback. Sometimes they'd publish some of the stuff. 
this is one of those early covers and one of his most iconic covers that he ever did. And what's crazy about this is if you look at the composition, I'm going to send this to you guys in the chat. Hang on. Yeah, you got to see the side by side. Mark was showing the picture for the people that can't see, obviously, but Mark was holding it up. He actually has this in his hand. It's pretty remarkable that you found that. I sent you guys a picture of this. It was, it's such an iconic cover that Todd McFarlane recreated the cover again years ago for Spawn number 230 in 2013. And what's so remarkable about the image is it's 1988, but technically you could almost say that this is the first Spawn. The way that he draws Batman in this, it's so reminiscent of what Spawn became years later. You can really see a lot of these signature Todd McFarlane styles. You have the, the cape that's kind of uh, shooting out. Seems like it has a life of its own, and it's kind of engulfing uh, a young lady who Batman is, is hugging. And then you got a big yellow circle behind it. Todd McFarlane always loves to use those big round circles. This is 1988. It predates Spawn by four years and uh, really set up what would become a legendary career for Todd McFarlane. So that's my pick. Batman 423, September wow. 1988. I'm really glad you have that issue, but we all know, Mark, you have tons of issues. <laughs> that I do, my friend. I knew that I do. Say that. <laughs> Guys, I got to say something to you now. I think the 88 team, the Mama Lukes, they just really know how to butter me up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I swear to God, because because Man Crush gives Larry Bird some props. Mark here is giving the Batman. I'm a huge comic book fan. Bringing out that issue is like hitting me straight in the feels. That's something else. I mean, 97, what's it called? Nanogachi Pets? You said they were popular when kids were like 12. The yeah. only problem with that was I was about 19 at the time, so I was always baked. <laughs> so I kind of I kind of missed the whole revolution of those. Fallout, I think, was a fantastic choice. I, I would argue they'd be even more popular with with baked people. <laughs> you think so? I I barely had time to like take care of myself and shower, let alone a little digital creature on a keychain. <laughs> He's like <laughs> passing the joint to his. What's it? It's not the. What is it called? A gigabit? What is it called again? A nano gigapet. Nano gigapet. Yeah. Oh, I thought it was nano gachi, and I'm writing this stuff down all wrong. I must still be baked. Who the hell knows, <laughs> knows what's going on here? It's because he just took care of himself in the shower. I did. How did you? <laughs> oh, you caught me with Batman's cape. I. This is actually kind of tough because on one side here, uh, like I said, that Jordan versus Bird, a lot of research done in that. That's a great choice. As, as you guys mentioned, it sets up the franchises, the sports franchises for the future. I think Fallout for 97 was a great choice because even though I'm not a video gamer, I've heard of Fallout and it's still carrying on to this day. Oh, boy. Well, the Gigapet, so you, you can't take away, even though you're out of that realm, it was still uh -huh. a, a cultural phenomenon for a no, certain window of, of, of uh, ages there. No, I, I agree with you. That's That was also a good choice. You guys are really... I might have to flip that that magazine again. Jeez, Louise! <laughs> if you would have came out with Tamagotchi, I think that's maybe Shaq. It's it's just a disparity between the two. Yeah. You know, it's like uh, I'm just thinking about it. Like if I threw out GoBots instead of Transformers, which I have before, by the way. Yeah. yeah. It, it would, it's just yeah. Hey, you threw them out in the garage. Yeah, it doesn't. No, I still have them. They're right over here. Um, but it's just it, like the weight 
wasn't there. Like the difference, yeah. you know? So I kind of feel. Yeah, well, it's a weird thing with those because I was actually, I came across those two and they were like the next step in the evolution because Tamagotchi only had one quote unquote animal, whereas you could, the Nana Gigo pets, you could buy a dog, you could buy a cat, you could buy a dinosaur. Uh, they debuted number four on the top selling toys just behind Tickle Me Elmo. GoBots had more GoBots than Transformers had Transformers too. I'm just throwing it out there. That's right. See, you're, you see, you're just saying that the, the lesser can be better than the other half, and that's what happened in this situation. All right, let's go down to Judge Dave Schultz for Ooh. his final ruling on round one. Uh, guys, you know, you just mentioned you could get a dog or a cat or a dinosaur. That's very impressive, even though I'm sure they all look virtually the same and probably really crappy. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I am a judge. I sit on my high throne. But I am also susceptible to butter, to which I feel Team 1988 just slid up my ass. So, therefore, 88 wins this round. Oh, man. Squeaker. All right, Man Crush. Pick our next category. Oh, man. Well, I say we go to news. Want me to start this one off? Yeah, go for it. All right. September 20th, 1988, American Diver. Greg Luganis wins the three-meter springboard gold medal at the Seoul Olympics after famously hitting his head on the board the previous day. I mean, this is a news story that everybody remembered. It kind of encapsulated the 88 Olympics. Greg Luganis goes up on one of his early dives, does a backflip. What had happened is he got his hips a little too forward, and uh, it switched his alignment when he sprung off the tip of the board. It moved him back a few inches, and as he was going through that first revolution, he could tell he was a little off, and he tried to tuck his hands in, and it just didn't give him enough clearance, and he clips the back of his head on the diving board as he's coming down, splits his head open, had to get some stitches and get it all patched up, and then he goes on to win the gold medal. American hero Greg Luganis, after bashing his head in. Was that the triple Lindy he was trying to get done there? What, what, was, what was the name of the dive? Do you have that information? I, I do not have the name it of the dive. It was just like a was, regular okay. like backwards handspring yeah. fucking, uh, I don't even fucking know what diver shit is called. But like, if you talk about the 88 Seoul Olympics, this is the only thing that mattered in the entire 88 yeah. Seoul Olympics. Oh, I remember. <laughs> yeah. And then years later, everyone's like, oh my God, when they found out he had AIDS. Yeah. He bled in the pool. Yeah, you know how much bleach and chlorine is in that pool, man? Mm-hmm. That's probably where he caught it. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I'm not a doctor. I don't know if that works like that. All right, Man Crush, over to you. All right, September 24th, 1988. Uh, just get right into it here. Jose Canseco, the other member of the Bash Brothers, becomes the first Major League Baseball player to ever get 40 home runs and 40 stolen bases in one season. He actually finished up with... 42 home runs and 40 stolen bases. It doesn't sound like much, but it's a pretty historical club as far as records go. I mean, after that, they called it the 40-40 club. And to this day, there's only four people in the club. But even Kitsako at the time, he didn't think that it was that big a deal. And this is another reason that it became so special, because in spring training of 1988, Kitsako actually said, I'm going to shoot for 40 home runs and 40 stolen bases this year. And I'm paraphrasing here, but he said, I figure only five or six players in history of baseball have done that. And little did he know, he would become the first one ever. And he called it before the season even started. Uh, I'm sure the steroids gave him some big balls. uh, But since then, three other people have done it. Barry Bonds, A-Rod, and then uh, Alfonso Suriano did it in 2006. 
but only four people. It's one of the smallest clubs in all of Major League Baseball when you talk about records. Here's a funny little story that I found when I was because I when I read the names, I was like, hmm, were all these guys on steroids? So I, I did some <laughs> digging. And of course, everybody knows Barry Bonds. Everyone knows A-Rod. But Alfonso Siriano, there's really there was a list that he came up on, but that it was never uh, it was unfounded. So you don't know if that's real or not. So I found this quote from 2006 when Siriano actually broke uh, into the 4040 club. <laughs> Upon recording his 40th stolen base of the season, in addition to his 45 home runs and gaining entry into baseball's exclusive 4040 club, Nationals left fielder Alfonso Siriano said that after meeting the other three members, Jose Canseco, Barry Bonds, and Alex Rodriguez, he now understands why no one has joined the club in the past eight years. And this is this is a direct <laughs> quote from him. From all I had heard, this club was going to give me the opportunity to be among the greats of the game. But it turns out that the three guys here, one of them, this big dumb guy who I still have no idea how he got in, kept asking me what kind of steroids I take and if he knew anyone else who took them, Siriano said. I thought this was supposed to be an elite club, but it looks like they'll just let about any asshole in. Siriano later announced plans to reach the 50-50 plateau as soon as humanly possible so he can get out of this group of assholes in the 40-40 club. Unfortunately, he retired, I think, in 2014 or something. Never made it to that. But, uh, yeah, there it is. The 40-40 club with first time ever Jose Canseco. Solid. Uh, All right, Joe, you go first this time. Okay. Well, I actually did come across a Mark McGuire-based story, but I figured, uh, steroid guys, that doesn't really count as news. You know what I mean? Dude, we've had this debate on the show before with uh, with Mike Ranger. Not so much a debate. We're all kind of in a grill that baseball is at its best when everybody was on steroids. It was was definitely (laughs) a crazy time. Let them fuckers take roids. Because, yeah, this was the year that um, Mark McGuire got his second 50 home run season in a in a row yep. tying uh, Babe Ruth but big ass ask asterisk moving on uh we uh I take you to September 16th uh to a tiny little company called Apple Computers uh where they just named Steve Jobs inter- Steve Jobs interim CEO after returning to Apple uh the previous August uh he obviously went on to remain CEO and what became the permanent CEO up until 2011 and uh, just, you know, let's list the things that have happened since he since the moment he took over uh, or took back over. Uh, he negotiated a deal with Microsoft to get MS Office on all of the, you know, on Mac uh, products, the iMac, the MacBook, uh, the introduction of the Apple stores, uh, Mac OS X, the iPod, iTunes, iPhone. It goes on and on and on. Uh, the things that occurred under his leadership, my opinions on him notwithstanding, uh, stand the test of time. It's the most, pr- it's, it's the most valuable company on the planet right now. And this was really the turning point. Uh, well, not the turning, but like the jumping point. That's it's the turning point. It's, yeah, because they were they, they were at a bit of a standstill. They were a shit show until he came back. Yeah, so that was the day. September sixteenth was the day he was officially named interim CEO after being brought. Back. I've been waiting for that to come up because, ah, oh, man, this was probably last year we did an episode, and we must have had August of ninety seven or July of ninety seven, and the the news story that I had that month was when it was announced that they were looking for a new CEO and they just put him in as a like interim basis and it was going to take over in September. 
And I remember all that stuff happening pretty much verbatim of what you said. So yeah, that's a huge thing. That's huge. So I'm glad that we uh, got news now and knocked that shit out of the way at a one point round. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Carlos, what do you got, man? All right. Well, on September 5th, 1997, we lost a mother herself. Mother Teresa died at the age of 87 years old after a long life of aiding the sick and poor and uh, but not without controversy, of course. But you you can't deny that she's, you know, one of the most well-known, you know, spiritual figures, you know, of recent times. They opened up missionaries all over the world, 133 countries had 4,500 nuns that she had helped aiding in regards to. They had dispensaries, mobile clinics, soup kitchens, and family counseling. So they, she provided aid for everybody in, in different ways. And like I said, it was not without controversy in regards to some things. Did you just say Mother Teresa ran a dispensary? <laughs> no, she goes missionary. Oh, That's what okay. he said. <laughs> Where is your head at? <laughs> Mother Teresa, was she was blowing the smoke, man. <laughs> man that there's there's a sound bite um i just got a real question uh either one of those people steve jobs or mother Teresa, in the 4040 club i didn't think so i think mother <laughs> Teresa was on her way i think she was close steve jobs has at least 40 steals they're just ideas damn you yeah you guys I, you guys got this round i don't even <laughs> yeah <laughs> Yeah, I think that's the first time a saint has ever been brought up on the show. <laughs> yeah. And Mother Teresa. <laughs> a twofer. Saint Jose, the patron saint of tiny legs. All right. For the official ruling, let's go over to Judge Dave Schultz. All righty here. Uh, yeah, I think 88, speaking of saints, might need to call in a priest to save this round for him. <laughs> You know, I, I, I like the sports talk. I appreciate that stuff. Uh, we established that Luganis didn't do the triple Lindy, which is a negative right there. <laughs> Jose Canseco, the forty forty club. Again, you know, I was a big uh, sports fan at that time. I remember that whole era. But like last round, when I said you guys were slipping butter into my nether regions, unfortunately this time was margarine <laughs> because the Mother Teresa story, and this is going to make me sound like a degenerate in the 90s, but I remember that day because I was tripping my balls off on acid. <laughs> And I couldn't believe the news on TV about this Mother Teresa died. I mean, I was like freaking out, man. So hands down, uh, 97, you win the round. Wow. Sometimes you get something like when we had news, Mark and I both looked at each other and said, this is trash. Like We we have nothing. (laughs) So, All right. Revenge of the Turds. You guys regain control of the board. What category would you like to go with? Ooh, I don't know. What do you think? You want to do music? Uh, are we still in the single point categories? Yes. This is the, the last single point category. Music? Yes. Let's do music. Let's do it. Okay. Um, so I'll jump in. So on September 6, 1997, we had Elton John performing Candle in the Wind at Prince Di- Princess Diana's funeral, uh, releasing the song uh, September 13th that peaked at number one in the UK. Uh, fourth number one single uh, overall in several countries and the Guinness World Record uh, in 2007 stated that it's the biggest selling single since re- records began. Uh, so yeah, it's uh, it was pretty huge at the time. And it's Elton John. God, I wish John Cross was on the show right now for that. <laughs> <laughs> we, we've had our fill of uh, the Princess Die talk. Like There was a string of about three months last year where she came up on every fucking episode. And uh, he banned <laughs> all Princess Die anything from being on. So you're actually lucky that he's not here today. Oh. I was going to say, I didn't, I didn't get the memo. 
Oh, he's anti-Canadian anyways. <laughs> you want me to pretend to be John Cross? No, you can't. Enough with this bloody fucking princess die talk. Come on now. I caramba, motherfucker. <laughs> That's almost verbatim what he said. Really? I nailed it. All apologies to him in advance. All right, please continue. All right. Um, so we're going to jump over to September 29th and a band called the verve released their album, urban hymns, uh, which contained their one major hit bittersweet symphony. Uh, that song, uh, contained a melody that was also very, uh, well known from the Rolling Stones song. The last time, uh, the Rolling Stones successfully sued and every penny of that song <laughs> went directly into the pockets of Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. Uh, that was a big thing for a very long time until this very year. In May of this year, they signed the publishing rights over to The Verve, and they now are making money off of this song finally. Wow. So their biggest hit, which they lost tons and tons and tons of money over because of the similar sounds of their of their melodies and uh the irony of all this the exact same day that urban hymns was released by the verve the rolling stones released the album bridges to babylon oh sh- i never knew that that's some shit right double there. dipping basically mm-hmm. oh man so yeah so that's mine what's the lead what's the lead singer of the verve's name again pipe no, Ver- Verve Pipe's totally different band. <laughs> Richard Ashcroft. Rich- yeah, yeah. Dude, that guy's got a great fucking voice. He's got some good solo shit out there. Mm-hmm. All right. So you guys came with the Verve fucking... Sir Elton. Yeah, I can't... I'm not allowed to say it, so I'll just <laughs> let you say it. Don't you do it! <laughs> Don't do it, wanker! I'll have to tag John in this just so he can listen back. Oh, please don't. Please don't. <laughs> All right, man, Crush. Who should go first on this I round? I guess I'll, I'll start. Fuck it. Uh, September 6th, 1988. Little background. So this afternoon, I looked at my wife and I said, and she never gives a shit what I'm doing for these episodes, but I was like, fuck it. I'm going to ask her. I said, hey, guess what, uh, what album I'm going to choose for you tonight? And she looked at me and said, new kids on the block hanging tough. And I shit you not. I didn't give her a date. Nothing. And it's not their debut album. It's actually their second album, but it's apparently a big one. And it's pretty much responsible for their success because as I read and as she told me, the uh, the label was actually going to dump them after their first album, which is some shit. So you're looking at eight times platinum in the United States. And I might not be buttering you up here. They are boys from Massachusetts. Maybe that's all you like. Yeah. But you know what? No, no, there's no butter involved. No, no they, not, not, I'm not proud they're from Massachusetts. No, no, but carry on. They've had some big careers, though. So eight times platinum in the United States. Joey, Donnie, Jonathan, Jordan, Danny. She made me put that in there. Became worldwide sensations <laughs> uh, towards the end of the 80s. Obviously, the album itself sold close to 15 million copies worldwide. Spurned off five singles, all top 10 Billboard Hot 100. Uh, two of them were number one hits, Hanging Tough and I'll Be Loving You. It's actually not too shabby. Uh, I know Mark was alive in 88. David was alive in 88. Joe, you were in Canada, so I don't know if that counts. Remember, I take, I'm take i in metric years. <laughs> Carlos, Carlos was around, but you were small. But like this was a fucking cultural phenomenon. These dudes were everywhere. They were the boy band of the 80s. Like If you ask somebody to name a boy band from the 80s, obviously I know there are other ones, but they're going to say New Kids on the Block. That's going to be the answer. 
My wife has seen them numerous times. She even wanted to go this summer while we were on vacation, but we couldn't. And it goes beyond this album. You know, it, it like I said, it was a phenomenon. They had magazines, TV appearances, absurd amounts of merchandise, which I almost used for a hot product, but there was so much shit that I could narrow it down to one thing. And I'm not even kidding. There's tons of shit. These guys had teenage girls running wild for years, <laughs> much like my wife. They still are. So I bring you September 6th, 1988, New Kids on the Block, Hanging Tough. When I had the 90s one time, it was Backstreet Boys. So taking one for the team here, you got to give it to them. 15 million copies. Come on. <laughs> yeah. oh. I, I hear you say you talked to your wife. I feel like you mean you talked to your mirror. Oh. <laughs> like, oh, it's the Backstreet Boys. It's great. <laughs> ah, come on. No, I'm telling you, she's still got her shit in boxes. You had your bad boy Donnie leather jacket on, <laughs> the fu- shredded, <laughs> shredded jeans. There's <laughs> his fucking balls hanging out. <laughs> but that, I mean, that shit started their entire careers. Those guys are like mega successful, and they've done all kinds of other shit since then. But that this is where it started. Except for Danny, nobody ever cares about Danny. Dan, yeah, Danny. He was an ugly motherfucker. That's why. You ever see that guy? I want to know the girls that bought his button. <laughs> <laughs> They only did it to complete the set. (laughs) He was the only person who had an actual Simpsons mouth. (laughs) He was the only one that looked like he was like 45 when they were all like 18. He was like Anthony Kiedis is perpetually stuck at like 19 years old. (laughs) All right. Anyhow, I digress. Off to you, Mark. All right, man, Crush. I'm kind of glad you went with New Kids on the Block because my selection is just like that album. Of course. Released September 7th, 1988. I give you the album Injustice for All from Metallica. If you look online, most places actually have this listed as being released August 25th, 88. But if you actually go to Metallica.com, it actually is September 7th of 88. Of course, this album gave us the iconic songs. One, Eye of the Beholder, Injustice for All, Harvester of Sorrow, The Shortest Straw. Just one of their iconic albums and the first album to feature new bassist Jason Newstead following the death of Cliff Burton in 1986. Although you probably won't hear Jason Newstead much on this album because uh, Lars Ulrich had the bass mixed so low into the mix, you actually can't hear the bass tracks. So good luck trying to hear what the brand new bass player from Metallica sounded like. But one of the absolute most iconic things about this album was when they released the one video, which was uh, the big single from this album. And to this day, one of their most popular songs, just about every possible list you could think of has listed this in the top 25 greatest hard rock and or heavy metal albums of all time. So released September 7th, 1988 in justice for all from Metallica. Well, Mark, let me just say right now, I'm a little concerned about that release date because you said, you know, across the web, it says one thing, but on Metallica.com, it says the other thing. Who should we trust? You trust Metallica.com. I would say you would go straight to the source. You think so? But they fucking sued Napster for crying out loud. Well, the odd thing is right underneath, if you go to Metallica.com backslash releases and then find your way to Injustice for All, it'll say Injustice for All, released September 7th, 1988. Right underneath of it, listen on Spotify, and there's a link. (laughs) Oh, there you go. (laughs) Trying to make up for it. All right, guys. uh, Jesus, 88. Uh, Injustice for All, 
Mark is right. Iconic record. God knows how much I listened to it back in the day during my misguided youth, especially considering how bad Metallica is now. Uh, New Kids on the Block were a scourge, a terrible thing, especially growing up in Massachusetts, them being local boys and all the girls love the crap out of them. So we're all jealous and yes, hateful. That, and and plus, that was, and, yeah, I was going to bring that up because th- during that time period, if you didn't live in it, and that's where I was going in the beginning, like. We all kind of had this hatred towards them, but looking back 30 years ago and looking at it now, these motherfuckers are living large, and they built this. You know, it's it's pretty nuts. And yeah, it's crazy. Donnie still has a career. His brother turned out to be Mark Wahlberg, for crying out loud. <laughs> I think his name was Charles before this whole thing started. The One problem with them, though, is NKOTB sounds like a sexually transmitted disease <laughs> to me, personally. Like, I've got a bad case of the NKOTB. Notice that's why I didn't say NKOTB. Do you? Stay away from me. How does it feel? It's hanging tough. <laughs> you know, they have a topical cream for that. <laughs> well, you got it. The right stuff. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh-huh. Let's see. Revenge of the Turds, the Elton John, you know, going back to the whole princess, you know who she was. That was like the same week as Mother Teresa. <laughs> and I think I was still on the same acid trip that happened. <laughs> uh, but that's actually impressive. The numbers behind that, because it was just a re-release of the song. Basically, he was singing it live. Correct. Yes. OK. Um, the Verve, the Bittersweet Symphony. I remember that being on like every stupid commercial. I remember the lawsuit. Uh, I was not a fan of the band, and I was so sick of that song. Hearing that song is even popping in my brain right now. It's giving me a headache. Oh, boy. Um, but I think I'm going to have to go with 88 on this one. NKOTB was a force to be reckoned with, and you cannot argue with some of Metallica's best material. All right, Man Crush, that gives us a two-to-one lead heading into the two-point rounds. What category do you want to go with next, man? Uh, I guess it. Uh, we got movies and TV. Let's just do movies first. Fuck it. Alrighty. Movies is always in the beginning of the end. Let's put it in the fucking middle. Yeah, why not? <laughs> Fuck it. Sandwich it. There you go. Um, you go first. All right. Release September second, nineteen eighty-eight. I give you the baseball classic, Eight Men Out, starring John Cusack and Michael Rooker, Charlie Sheen, D.B. Sweeney. Of course, this tells the tale of the 1919 World Series and the scandal that surrounded it as the Chicago White Sox, or as they would become known as the Chicago Black Sox, kind of threw the World Series, got uh, tied up with the mob, took some payoffs, and uh, the World Series got thrown, and it almost destroyed uh, baseball. Fantastic movie, really understated, and it is an underappreciated baseball movie. I think it's definitely in the top 25 baseball dramas of all time. <laughs> That's a hearty list. <laughs> Holy cow. Is there even 25 baseball movies of all time? No. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just underneath the fan. Bobby. Yeah. No, it's got to be better than the fan. Come on. Oh, it's way better than yeah. the fan. That's actually- a good movie. Oh, it's a fantastic movie. I mean, it's not a a laugh a minute like Major League, but it's a really serious movie about a very serious thing that happened to America's pastime. Yeah, it's more it's more of a drama about baseball than a baseball Correct. movie. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of a sad story because you find out uh, it focuses on DB Sweeney's character. Who was he plays Shoeless Joe Jackson. And when you learn more about who that character was and how his career developed and what happened, it's kind of a sad story. So that's what I got. Eight men out. 
September 1988. All right. Good one. All right. Uh, I'm going September 30th, 1988. We got the James Signorelli horror comedy that featured uh, Cassandra Peterson in her iconic theatrical film debut as Elvira. So some of you might know, you know, who Cassandra Peterson is by her name, but everybody knows Elvira, Mistress of the Dark. And that's the movie that I'm going in. Uh, as a matter of fact, she just turned 68 a couple days back. Uh, we posted that to our Facebook page earlier this week. So I'm not a stalker or anything. It was actually on our Facebook. This would be uh, Elvira's first time on the big screen as Elvira. She, I know she was in Pee Wee's Big Adventure, but she played a biker chick and she was just Cassandra Peterson. She did not play Elvira. So this is her first time seeing it. Uh, it's actually a good movie and it's worth seeing. Love, it's lots of stupid humor in this movie. The thing that really hurt this movie, and this is one of the reasons I wanted to put it in there because it was interesting and I like Roger Corman and all that shit. Roger Corman's New World Pictures is supposed to distribute this movie. And then in typical Roger Corman style, just as this movie is going to be released, New World Pictures filed for bankruptcy. And all the marketing went out the window for the movie. So instead of being, it was supposed to be all, you know, I forgot how many theaters there were in 1988. I read it. It was like 1800 or whatever it was. It was only released to like 900 or some shit like that. So like half. Um, it had a $7 million budget, so this wasn't supposed to be a straight-to-video movie. And if you look on IMDb, it's actually got really good ratings. It's got like a 6.5 out of 10 f- with like 11,000 ratings, which is good for this type of movie. And the fact that it's Elvira in her first movie. And on top of that, you know how incredible is it that a woman like this, she's been able to stay relevant in the constructs of Halloween for her entire career playing one character that in itself is just fucking blows my mind because how many other people these days can you think of that's done that i think there's even kids now that know who elvira is and they've never even seen anything that she's done but but you can go and you can watch this movie elvira mistress of the dark lots of stupid humor good flick and a matter of fact i think it's on amazon prime for free matter of fact it, it was a couple weeks ago so check that out Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, September 30th, 1988. All right, Carlos, over to you guys, man. So uh, September 19th, 1997, my 13th birthday, uh, L.A. Confidential was released. Uh, it has uh, Kevin Spacey, Russell Crowe, Guy Pierce, Kim, Kim Basinger. Uh, it w- made $126 million on a $35 million budget. It's so pretty solid. Uh, it was critically acclaimed, holds a 99% rating on Rotten Tomatoes, and a 90 out of 100 on Metacritic. And it was nominated for nine Academy Awards, uh, including Best Picture, winning two uh, for Best Supporting Actress that Kim Basinger won and Best Adapted Screenplay. Uh, Titanic just happened to win all the other uh, categories that year. So you can see who they're up against. So pretty good company. Uh, and then in 2015, the United States Library of Congress selected the uh, selected the movie uh, for preservation in the National Film Registry, uh, finding it culturally, his- historically, and aesthetically significant. So L.A. Confidential. That's the movie that Kim Basinger got the Oscar for. I just watched the roast of uh, Alec Baldwin, and they mentioned that. Oh, yeah, he it. got shredded oh, in that. He got killed. <laughs> it was pretty funny shit. But I, had no, I was like, fuck, what movie did Kim Basinger get a... An Oscar for, but all right, good one. Yeah, that was less of a roast and more of an intervention. <laughs> really? 
<laughs> but um, all right, so I want to bring you guys uh, north of the border with me right now. I'm going to take you to the Toronto International Film Festival on September 11th of 1997, where a little movie, which would actually be released across North America the following month, made its debut at TIFF, and that was Paul Thomas Anderson's breakout, Boogie Nights. Uh, it actually won the uh, Metro Media Award at TIFF that year. It actually tied with LA Confidential, believe it or not, uh, for that particular award. Uh, it was actually based on the first thing that Paul Thomas Anderson ever made, which was a uh, short film called The Dirk Diggler Story. Uh, this was his second ever feature after Heart Eight, but this was considered his breakout writing and directing job. Uh, the movie itself was nominated for 58 awards amongst critic awards and all these different things, winning 36 of them. It won critics awards for best uh, screenplay, won critics awards for best ensemble cast. I got an Oscar nominations for Burt Reynolds, Julianne Moore, and Paul Thomas Anderson's writing, and uh, a Golden Globe win for Burt Reynolds for best supporting actor, and is best known as Mark Wahlberg's breakout role as far as uh, being ser like being in a serious film. So, uh, really large movie, uh, big success. <laughs> big success was huge. Uh, a lot of people in it. A lot of people became yeah, became big stars after this movie. Big bright shining star. <laughs> mm -hmm. And just mm -hmm. think of Paul Thomas Anderson's career after this came out too. Basically, hit after hit after hit, and like critical hit and all that. Uh, yeah, Boogie Nights debuts at the Toronto International. Hey, Film respect Fest. for wow. digging that. I like. I love it when people go, especially with movies, because you could always find the sneak peeks and things like that. If you do the research, you can find the day and make it work. And you just did that. So good job on that. Thank you. Fantastic movie. All right. Over to our judge, Dave Schultz. Hey, hey, let's talk about 88 first. Eight men out. Uh, <laughs> Mark, you kind of said it. Top 25. That is really a mess. <laughs> baseball movie uh sorry to say uh it's not one of my favorites even being a baseball fan i love sports films as well elvira that whole thing is interesting you mentioned she was a halloween icon and that's something to be celebrated but it also reminds me of something like a cadbury cream egg which is really only special at easter you don't think of elvira all year round you know what i mean i know she's iconic i understand that i get it she is the modern day Vincent Price. Yeah, so that fucking guy, who cares? Well, I, he was selling like shrunken heads <laughs> that you could make out of rotten apples and shit. What kind of career was that? Come on. His most famous thing is is a gif or jif of uh, Kermit the Frog biting him on no the neck. No way. That's what future generations will remember of Vincent Price. I'm sorry. Um, L.A. Confidential. You almost lost me with the Rotten Tomatoes score because I hate those fucking critics, man. But the Oscars are very impressive. But the true winner of this category is Boogie Nights, as it is one of my favorite movies of all time. That cast, that script, the movie was a little bit long, but so wasn't its star. So therefore, <laughs> 97 takes it by a mile. All right, Revenge of the Turds takes the lead 3-2 to two, and control of the board for the final round. Would you guys like to go first, or would you like to defer? Ooh. Ooh. I, I, I'm leaning toward defer almost. Yeah, you know what? Let's try that. I'll see how much how much I have to butter up the judge. Yeah. <laughs> hey, right. that, hey, that that's the Patriots' way. So you're doing a good job <laughs> to the New England guy over here. Yeah, I like yeah. that. All right, man, crush. It's over to us. Where do we want to start? All right. Um, I don't even remember. I'm trying to think what you had. Go ahead. You could start because I I totally forgot. Oh shit. 
That defer is working wonders right now. <laughs> we're, we're in His their mind heads already. wiped this motherfucker. Right, His mind is gone. <laughs> All right, guys, we're ready to party, and I hope you brought lots of spaghetti. So come on in. Come to the place where the fun never ends. Come on in, because it's time to party with Garfield and Friends. Debuting in September 17th, 1988, I give you Garfield and Friends, one of the most iconic cartoons of our youth. Of course, this is the cartoon that starred Garfield and Odie and John, but also starred all the great characters from U.S. Acres, which was the cartoon that Jim Davis originally wanted to create. The TV network said that the cartoon had to focus around Garfield, but the other characters could be the friends of Garfield and Friends. So, yeah, September 17th, 1988, the debut of Garfield and Friends. The series ran until 1995. Which is, that's long for a cartoon. After doing all the research of all these, every time we pass through a cartoon, even like G.I. Joe and shit, they're like two or three seasons, Transformers, the same thing, until they like, you know, spurn off into, uh, you know, like some offshoot or some shit like that. But that's a long time for a cartoon. Like GoBots? <laughs> GoBots is immortal. I mean, I have it right here. It's on the bottom yeah. shelf. I'm not even going to get it. <laughs> <laughs> Man crush. Over All to right. you. All right. So before I begin, I'd like to point out that the Summer Olympics in Seoul, Korea, like we mentioned before, was actually going on now. It began September 15th, which is super late for the summer game. So in spite of that. All of our new shows, they they didn't begin. When I'm talking new shows, I mean like sitcoms and things like that. They didn't begin till October or November. So you're used to listening to the show and us throwing out things like Roseanne or whatever, which actually did debut in 88. But later on, they all got bumped back because NBC had made this deal with uh, the Olympic Committee where they took all the gold medal rounds and they had them in the afternoons. So they were all played during prime time during that. So nobody wanted to compete against that. People were actually watching the Olympics back then. Uh, Mark and I didn't want to use the Olympics for a TV show. So I just wanted to throw that out there for the people that are listening. Like, where the fuck are the shows? That's where they were. They just didn't begin because of that. But anyhow, uh, September 5th, 1988, we get the premiere of the syndicated episode of the talk show that was only played in New York at the time. Uh, much like they did with Oprah, which uh, a couple months ago, I had the same thing happen. Uh, one of those picks. The networks were looking for local talent that they could put on a national stage. So when Regis Feldman and Kathy Lee Gifford took themselves to the airwaves on September 5th, no one knew what to expect because this was like a local market, New York City thing. They weren't huge stars at the time. Luckily for us, hindsight being 2020, we know that this show went on to be a staple of morning program and still is to this day. The show live with Regis and Kathy Lee started what would become over 8,000 episodes, 31 years and five different hosts after uh, Regis and Kathy Lee, they parted ways in the year 2000 and Regis went on to host the show with Kelly Ripa until he retired in 2011. And since then Kelly Ripa, of course she's had uh, I think Michael Strahan and uh, Ryan Seacrest who's currently in that seat. Uh, and I know, you know, normally we talk about nighttime programming, but it's important to remember these other time slots like we did a few months ago when we had the uh, the Oprah thing. And this one's right about there because these two became icons in spite of the show. So that's why I got uh, live with Regis and Kathy Lee. 
All right, Revenge of the Turds, over to you guys. All right, Joe, do it up. All right, I'm going to start this one off. Um, this is an interesting one. September 19th, 1997, a Titan is split apart. Uh, TGIF has been known for the bulk of the decade as the one of the most dominant time blocks on television, uh, the must-see Thursday the must TV Thursday being probably the other one. But uh, as far as family entertainment went, nothing beat TGIF. And as of the end of the 96-97 uh, season, uh, there had been some issues. And CBS decided they wanted to throw their hats into the Friday primetime ring. And they purchased the rights to Family Matters and Step by Step, which were part of the TGIF block to start their own block called the CBS block party. So they had those as their flagship and leaving behind the remaining shows on TGIF. And they started scrambling and doing some, uh, kind of changing their formatting a bit, moving a bit younger. Uh, it ended up splitting the audience, uh, between the two sides and actually killed both time blocks. So, this big move by CBS, which they thought was going to be a big takeover, actually destroyed the Friday night family entertainment. CBS did go on to dominate that time block from pretty much then till the present day with, uh, they put on dramatic, uh, TV at that point. They stepped away from the family TV, uh, starting off with simpler things like Nash Bridges and Jag. This is the late nineties. You know what it was like. And then just moving forward. Uh, but that was the end of a literal era when they purchased those two shows and made them compete against their old home and everything fell apart from there. I would say that those shows were all kind of dying at that point. Everyone was getting older. Cause I remember I grew up with those TGIF in the late eighties going up into the nineties and I graduated in 96, but I'd say by like 95, everyone was getting older on those shows, especially like um, Full House and uh, Family Matters. The stories were just getting like so stupid. <laughs> like they did, <laughs> the whole thing was falling apart anyway. And uh, they lost a You're daughter. Steve Urkel going in space yeah. and turning to <laughs> Ur St Stefan Urkel. <laughs> so it got so weird. Isn't that when we had Robot Urkel? And oh, yeah. Oh yeah, he, he was took the over the show though for sure, for good or bad. All right, Carlos, dying to hear what you got, man. All right, here to to round it off. So I'm going to double dip a little bit, but it's because I'm going for the jugular. So this is September 6th, 1997. This is the airing of Princess Diana's oh, God. worldwide oh, TV Jesus broadcast. Christ. <laughs> it's Princess dead at this point. Jesus. <laughs> You can end it after me. It's done. <laughs> We're going to have a but, retirement board up. <laughs> 2,000 people attended the ceremony. 32 million people in UK watched it, but over 2.5 billion people estimated watched it worldwide, making it one of the biggest estimated televised events in history to this day. And of course, you know, it's been it's been in the news for years you know different controversies different different con uh, you know theories and things like that so um but the funeral itself you know the royals are always they always get the the big ratings with the the funerals or with the the uh, the marriages but this one was like it just topped all of them did it top her wedding as well that's a good question we actually had her wedding as a pick a while back like sometime last year and the wedding numbers were huge too 
and uh, John shit all over it as well. Um, <laughs> it's it's one of those things, and the way that John explained it to us, it's big to like people outside of it, and then the people that are there, are like, eh, eh, eh. I've got the numbers here. An estimated seven hundred fifty million people watched the war- the wedding ceremony compared to the two point five billion for the funeral. Yeah, it's no live aid, tell you that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, over to the judge, Dave Schultz, Ooh, boy. for the final ruling and verdict for this game. Yeah, this one's kind of tough. I mean, the the princess, whatever her name is, <laughs> uh, that Carlos brought up here, the, you know, the numbers don't lie. I mean, they, they're really something else. They're phenomenal numbers. Uh, the CBS block party, I mean, how stupid could CBS be? I understand that. But, I mean, was it like a monumental epic thing that everybody remembers to this day? I don't really think so, you know, personally. But that being said, over on the 88 side with the Mamelukes, nobody gives a fuck about Garfield and Friends either. <laughs> I got to I got to be honest. I mean, I think US Acres was actually a better cartoon than Garfield and Friends. What about Heathcliff? <laughs> Heathcliff maybe, you know, I'm uh, yeah, I don't know, it's the battle of the orange cats there. So who knows <laughs> Heathcliff but- is the go-bot to fucking Garfield. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, and they were showed back to back the same show. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Man Crush came with the Olympics. No, I no, no. Sure no. I think I'm with the Olympics. With I, oh. No, no, wait. <laughs> Don't you jump over the judge, motherfucker. You slow your roll. But then you knocked my fucking socks off because Regis and Kathy Lee was so big in my life back in that time. Like, I, I just remember loving to watch them in the mornings. Kathy, speaking of time slots, okay, Kathy Lee was the first slot I wanted to fill. She, I had a crush on her like you wouldn't fucking believe. And, I mean, you can't argue with how successful that show has been over the years. And unlike some of the other things stated here, it I think it's fairly iconic. You do kind of get knocked down a peg, though, because you didn't mention, what was his name, G- Gilman? Remember Gilman, oh, the, the, producer? the nerdy producer? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you should have thrown him in there. You know, come on. He's the guy behind the scenes. I know Gilman's name. <laughs> oh, thank you. Well, that, <laughs> he that, said that, that's what everyone that, else did. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah. He said still Gilman. That, <laughs> Gil, Gilman. He's like the uh, creature from the Black Lagoon. I don't even know if it's Gilman. I think it's Gil something. Is it, what is it? It's, no, it's, it's Michael Gelman. Gelman. G-E Gelman. Okay. You say tomato, I say tomato. Let's call the whole thing off. And in the spirit of that, I, you know, here's what I'm going to do. Because I kind of did a nasty John Cross imitation earlier. And I feel like I should be apologizing for Infinity for it. And I'm going to knock down the Princess die, And I'm going to give the win to the Mamelukes. Oh, oh wow. 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 The mo- one of the most viewed things in all of 2. television. 2.5 billion. How many people have watched Regis and, and Kathy Lee? <laughs> I would argue not 2.5 oh, billion. Oh I, oh, I beg to differ. And this is what I would have to say to you. How many times have you watched that funeral after it fucking happened? How many repeats of Regis and Kelly? It's on Kathy every Lee day. You, you don't have to watch a repeat. We're not talking about every day. We're talking about <laughs> September 1997. Yeah, but legs. That's, I was that's watching the a lot. The argument is how big was this thing in 1997 at the time? And this was arguably bigger than those two things. So... That's my argument. This has, this is I legs. obviously watched more Regis and Kathy Lee because I had a lot of masturbating to do. <laughs> right. So I, I watched that so many times compared to the die funeral. But I'm sorry, guys. The Kathy Lee, the Regis and Kathy Lee win it for me, hands down. Got to give the points over Cross there. your legs again. Cross your legs again. Cross your legs again. <laughs> <laughs> 
Well, on that note, Duelers, we'll end this game right here. Thanks a lot to Dave Schultz for coming on the show and being our judge tonight. From Carlos from the Be Kind and Rewind podcast. And, of course, Joe Finley. Joe. Tell us what's going on with Miscast Commentary, man. Uh, Miscast Commentary is still dropping new episodes every Friday. Uh, we're just coming into our October horrorific month, so horror movies, great 80s horror movies all month uh, for commentaries and all that. And we do our bonus episode on Halloween, and this year we're doing Halloween 3 Season yes. of the Witch. Wow. We just released our, uh, our horror list for all of uh, October, and that was... The nice. first Friday of October, we had the double feature. It was a Tom Atkins double feature with Night of the Creeps, followed by Season of the Witch. It's good solid. One. Well, if you've missed an episode, Duelers, you can always go back on DuelingDecades.com, where you can subscribe to all of our shows on CastBox and on iTunes. Also, make sure you're following us over on our Facebook group, Facebook.com forward slash Dueling Decades, where you can play all of our trivia every single day in our Facebook story. And then we have culmination trivia, and then we have the audio trivia twice a week as well. So lots of content going on. You can follow all of it at DuelingDecades.com. So until next time, Duelers, we're going to bid you a peace, love, light, and a joy. Have a grateful week, everyone. Infirmary Media.